Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time we dealt with the aftermath of Gustavus' death, and Oxenstierna plans to deal with the hole in the Swedish plan, as well as a Catholic reaction to the change in the status quo, which ultimately resulted in Oxenstierna securing an uneasy peace. However, as we'll go into this time, it won't be so easy as this. So without further ado, let's get started. With the army secured for now, Oxenstierna moved to deal with Saxony. He had already tried to get ahead of Saxony trying to form a neutral bloc, and said bloc getting in the way of Gustavus' plan for Germany, which was a united German front. Richelieu, in the wake of the king's death, was even considering switching his support from the Swedes to the Saxons, as they would be more easily controlled as the Swedes had shown they were independent and didn't just follow what the French wanted. The money coming from France actually stopped after Gustavus' death, and Richelieu had sent representatives to examine who would be the best people to support. To show Sweden's relevant status, Oxenstierna had a congress in Helbron, which was well attended by minor lords and princes, which was helped due to the fact that the city it was in was in a safe position in the war. In contrast, Johann George tried to lead a congress at Dresden, but that went poorly as very few attended it, and it showed the Swedes were still the dominant face of the Protestant war effort. With this established, France agreed to support Sweden again, confirming the dominant position of Sweden as the Protestant leader. Sweden then took over as the head of what was to be called the League of Helbron on April 27th, 1633, named after the city he did the Congress at. The German leaders agreed to keep fighting until Sweden could properly compensate them for their part in the war and continue the war effort if they wanted to, and Sweden agreed to press the emperor to establish the pre-war conditions as its official policy, which on one hand would go against Sweden's power grabbing, but Sweden didn't have the influence it did when Gustavus was alive, so negotiation was more needed, although Sweden still wanted to come out of it with land, so it was more of an issue of policy before the war than, like, land stuff before the war. That had sailed at this point, based on the lands the Imperials had given out of at this point, all the various lords who had been run out of their lands. Way more complex, you can't just go back to the old status quo in terms of actual land and ownership. But back to the League, Oxenstierna was put as the director, which gave him veto power. He was then backed by ten councillors, three of them being Swedish and the rest being German collaborators and allies. The League forming was a good sign, or at least interesting, despite the circumstances. Because even with Gustavus dead, most Protestants still preferred to stick with the Swedes over trying to do a separate peace or break away. It still relied on people wanting to do it and be in it, and they had to raise money to supply around 80,000 troops, but they could only raise 2.5 million talers of the 9.8 a year that was needed. So the war was, once again, expensive as it was covered, and 10 million talers a year is not cheap. Central Europe was not in good shape, and a continuing war would not help them anymore, but... There was little choice at this point. Meanwhile, France was off-put by Sweden's independence, and Richelieu sent agents to try to undermine Oxenstierna's authority as the director. The agents offered members to send the money France was giving to the Swedes to them if they accepted French protection over the Swedes, because, you know, they wanted their own policy going forward. It seems strange that they did that, as France needed the organization in Sweden as a stopgap to act as a neutral party between the Imperials and them, but if they wanted to get what they wanted, they would need to get rid of the organization to do the political goals, so... I don't know what game Richelieu is playing, and it won't turn out as he wants, but that will be a whole nother thing in the next couple of years in the war. But it was very clear France wanted to expand their influence into Germany in the HRE's vassals, and Sweden, being military power, got in the way of that. But at the same time, Sweden was the only thing standing between an imperial victory, like they had done many times before, so they couldn't 
really throw them under the bus, even if they're working against them behind the scenes, them being France, if you didn't know. However, Oxenstierna still had to win over Upper and Lower Saxony, the Upper and Lower Saxons more accurately, which included Brandenburg and Saxony, who had previously shown their two major German princedoms. Keep in mind, they were still allied with the Swedes, but with the new balance of power, people were renegotiating their agreements with the Swedes. They basically needed those two to have the League be effective as they were the two biggest princedoms in the area. But Brandenburg didn't join the league, instead joined the French-Swedish alliance on October 28th, so that was one person out. He then tried to pressure Darmstadt into paying contributions with a threat of invasion, but that failed, so along with not getting Saxony in, it left the league floundering. It was similar to the League of Nations floundering when the United States wasn't a part of it. It was there, but it had less influence and power than Oxenstierna wanted, although... It still acted as a face of organization and leadership for the Protestant cause, even if there was, you know, internal fighting like always. It showed that Oxenstierna's and Gustavus's plan of German unity was not really working out, as it was hard to really enforce that, especially after the exhaustion of the war was starting to set in again. But that wasn't the only thing on Oxenstierna's plate. He also had to deal with a military issue that was rising up. The military situation as a whole had not gotten real better. Aldringen, a imperial commander, had begun to clear Swedish garrisons in the south after Lutzen in early 1633, and Horn, a Swede, began to attack from Alsace with the Rhineish army, and Bernard attacked through Thuringia with the remains of the royal army picking up men along the way. He then crossed the Danube at Danauerth, joining Horn at Augsburg on April 9th, giving them a combined 42,000 men. They outnumbered the Imperials 2 to 1 at this point, but before they could take advantage of that, a mutiny struck the Swedish military. Since 1631, the soldiers really hadn't been paid, Swedes and Germans alike, repeating what had happened to everyone at this point of the war. And, I mean, we can go back to the initial rebellion, people are getting paid and promised, oh, we'll pay you, we'll pay you, just hold on. And again, the Swedes now hit this, if not doing it before. And as we know, troops not getting paid creates issues, which ranges from desertion at best to mutiny at worst. And because they weren't getting paid, their discipline had lapsed, especially after they were promised bonuses after Brettenfeld and Lutzen. Bernard's march through Franconia was disorganized, and when troops looted Landsberg for four days, the troops cut down the 300-strong garrison along with 156 inhabitants, sorry, 154 inhabitants, and that was not helped by officers either not being able to take control or encouraging the troops due to their own issues from not being paid. Sweden had taken advantage of the fact that Gustavus kept the Protestants together to keep discontent to a minimum, as he had the raw charisma to keep people in line even when they weren't getting paid. But with him gone, they could no longer really use that as a weapon. So with him dead, the men were no longer willing to wait, especially the officers. And with the news about the League of Helbron, or Helbron, in France, it seemed that they would have money to cover all the pay that was owed. But as we all know, the money wasn't there, and the money they were getting did not cover the yearly debt they were accruing to supply the war. So there was money for them, but not enough to like cover all the money they were owed in back pay. Bernard took advantage of this to invade Eichstatt in May with mutinying troops, and like I covered earlier, he was ambitious if a short sighted leader, so this would fit into what we know about him as he kind of wanted to become the new commander and wanted to enrich himself, so it's in character for him. When Bernhard arrived at Helbron, Oxenstierna capitulated to his demands, seeing that he really couldn't oppose him. Previously, Gustavus had been careful about giving out land or keeping it to maintain the Swedish overlordship, but Oxenstierna had to abandon that, giving up the land to officers to keep them happy. 
To keep things simple and to not give you a list of who got what, what basically happened was the Swedish officers were given land, but they had to pay back the cost of the land. So basically what happened is over a set period of time, usually a couple of years, that sort of thing, they were paying back the Swedes for what the land was worth, but that was basically what the land would have been given the Swedes without them being paid. So it was kind of a net neutral in terms of money. But it hurt the long-term political goals of the army, as it no longer was just Swedish land that was carefully being controlled, maybe to be given out for, like, political favor or put the right people in charge. This undermined the balance of power among the officers, as the officers now had more money and individual influence to do what they wanted, but they were not being stopped for the greedy ones. And the other issue was, because the ends were spread around through officers and not, like, you know, local nobility, that sort of thing, it was hard to hold on to it effectively from a political sense. Because it was hard to ensure they'd be part of the Swedish Empire if some people didn't want to be part of the Swedish Empire, and many people didn't necessarily have loyalty to the Swedish crown, they just wanted land for themselves. They still served them, but they weren't, like, they weren't as loyal as when Gustavus was alive. Millions of talents of land was given away, which in short term solved the issue of the mutiny, but in the long term it hurt the Swedish war effort and ultimate war goals. The biggest gain, or the person who gained the most, was Bernhard, who got Bamberg and Würzburg as the Duke of Franconia, which he paid 600,000 talers over four years for, on top of relevant contributions as the war was continuing. His brother took over as the day-to-day -day running of the government, but he was actually dealing with local resistance from locals and nobility, due to the fact they weren't Franconian, they were Swedish. Horn then had received the Teutonic Knights headquarters at Mergentheim, which created issues between him and Bernhard as they were competing for stuff and they were competing for riches and not exactly pleasant. So Oxenstierna was in a worse position, having capitulated to the mutineers, and the issue of command still hadn't been solved, and the loyalty of the Germans was weakened, even if another man had left. The Swedes now had to negotiate instead of being more forceful, which showed the new status quo of the alliance. Granted, the Swedes were still a powerful military, but this mess would not be solved easily, and the short-term moves are not helping, despite what it looked like at the time. We have high-tech 2020, that sort of thing, but even people like that must have seen this was a mistake. But moving away from the war, since Oxenstierna has become a bigger figure, I thought it might be worth giving you a short biography like I normally do. You know, I'm not going to go too into detail, just cover basic just so you understand more. I fully encourage you to investigate him and research on your own if you really interested in him, but I'll just jump right in. Also, yeah, heads up, I might butcher his name. Axel Gustafsson Oxenstierna Af Sodermore was born on June 16th, 1583 as the oldest of nine siblings. I mentioned one of the siblings way earlier in the podcast, something like that. It's not relevant now, but I believe I mentioned it. His family was influential, holding offices in high state in the church. So high state meaning like high positions in the court, etc., that sort of thing. He was given an education like an enrollment would have gotten, but after his father died, he was sent outside of Sweden to finish up his education in Germany and returned home by 1603. And between 1606 and 1611, he acted as a diplomat for Gustavus' father, trying to keep peace, although it failed in the case of Denmark, as I lightly covered in the Swedish episode. Well, the episode on Swedish history. And when Gustavus took over the throne, earlier than he should have, or earlier than he was to inherit, Gustavus appointed Oxenstierna as the Lord High Chancellor. This effectively meant he ran the everyday running of the bureaucracy, acting as an effective leader of policy and enforcement. He basically had a hand in all aspects of the government, and from what we can tell, he was good at running it. 
And throughout the wars of the 1610s and 1620s, he gained several pieces of land for his service, which involved keeping supplies flowing to Gustavus's war, running the home front when Gustavus was on the front lines, doing a lot of the background stuff that was important for keeping the country stable. He was also assigned as the governor of Riga during the 1620s, which was important in the war against Poland, as it was a strategic location. And leading into the Thirty Years' War, he was important in terms of getting men and supplies into Germany, as well as organizing and negotiating trade. And when Gustavus landed, he was asked to help negotiate with German leaders to assist Gustavus, and he helped frustrate the Spanish, which halted their advance in 1632, before Gustavus died. Not through military conflict, but just maneuvering in political and economic means. And we all know what happened after Gustavus died, so I'll leave the biography off here, as we will be continuing on after this. But... Overall, it appears Gustavus held the service in high regard, and I can see why he took over as a de facto head of Sweden when Christina was young. He was a skilled administrator, knew how to run the government, and it just kind of appeared that during the war and Gustavus' death, he just took on too many responsibilities, at least in my book, that it became harder to focus on each individual thing. But with that said, next time, we move on to the startup of military operations as the war was still happening and people were beginning to move again. I want to thank you all for listening in, and I hope you are enjoying it. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. Reminder that I have a Patreon. Thanks to those who support me. And please review and spread the word. And I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>